Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today we will hear from Dr. Mark Sandy, the chief economist of Moody's Analytics. He is also the lead director of Reinvestment Fund, one of the nation's largest community development financial institutions, which makes investments in underserved communities. Today he will discuss the rising risk of inflation and what to expect in upcoming spending bills in Washington. Let's listen in. So Tim Sloan, I think we'll we'll kick it off to you as uh, one of the leaders of No Labels and appreciate you hosting us today. Well, thank you, Nancy. Yeah, it's, a, it's a pleasure to see everybody. I hope you're all healthy and, and vaccinated. Uh, um, I'm, um, I am privileged to also uh, introduce uh, Mark Sandy. Uh, many of you know Mark because he's, uh, he's, his faces and opinions are frequently uh, uh, on uh, some of the, the, uh, the business and news shows that uh, we all uh, watch, probably even a little bit more than, than uh, we'd hope over the last year. But, uh, but Mark is the chief economist at Moody's uh, Analytics and he directs uh, the firm's uh, economic research. He's also on the board of uh, MGIC, which is the nation's largest uh, private mortgage insurer. Um, And he's the head of a pretty interesting uh, business that I know we worked with when I was at Wells Fargo, the Reinvestment Fund, which is one of the nation's largest community development uh, financial institutions, which uh, purpose is to make uh, investments in underserved uh, communities. Uh, Mark regularly testifies uh, before Congress. He provides uh, regular briefings to uh, uh, boards, trade associations, and uh, policymakers. Uh, and uh, he's, as I mentioned, he's a regular uh, commentator on economic issues of all sorts uh, uh, on uh, CNBC and Bloomberg and, and all the other uh, networks. Um, he uh, was supportive of the um, the recent COVID-19 uh, relief plan, though, uh, like many, I think he, he's he been uh, vocal in saying that it probably could have been a bit better targeted, which might be an understatement. Um, and uh, and uh, he also uh, has some interesting perspectives on uh, infrastructure as well as uh, uh, employment and inflation. So with that, Mark, I'll t- turn it over to you if you could give us uh, 10 to 15 minutes of your best uh, forecasts that are all actionable, and we'll all be correct, of course. Uh, that'd be terrific. And then we'll open it up for questions, and and we'll hold the questions like we normally do. I'll I'll uh, call on somebody and give uh, a little bit of notice for the next few questioners, and we'll try to wrap up uh, within the hour. So, Mark, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Tim. <clears throat> thanks for the very kind introduction. And uh, yeah, Wells was a, is a great partner with uh, Reinvestment Fund, the CDFI that I uh, that I'm on. Um, so uh, thank you for that. And uh, thank you, Nancy. It's good to see you. It's been a, a little bit since uh, we've crossed paths, but it uh, looks like you're doing fan- very, very well. And it's great to see no, no labels doing being so successful. And I know it's influencing the policy debate and discussion, and uh, that's uh, really important. So congratulations on your success. And, and hopefully you continue to gain, gain traction because we certainly need uh, a, a very uh, a more bipartisan approach to things. So uh, I hope, uh, hope your success continues. 
So thank you for uh, the opportunity to speak to you. Maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll talk about where I think, and, and by the way, Tim, I just strive to be 51% right. So that's my goal, <laughs> uh, uh, more or less. So maybe I'll give you a sense about, about where I think uh, the economy is headed uh, over the next year or so. And uh, I'm optimistic. I think the economy is going to be strong. And I'll walk you through that uh, quickly. And a part of that story, that optimism is around the fiscal support. And as Tim said, if I were king for the day, I might have designed the last package, the American Rescue Plan, a, a bit differently. But, you know, uh, I think it landed in a reasonably uh, good place, given all the constraints. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit about the next package, which the president, President Biden's going to unveil tomorrow. And uh, we're already getting a pretty good sense of it and talk about that a little bit. And then there will be a, uh, a third package uh, a little later uh, uh, with regard to very social programs. So we can I can mention that uh, in brief as well. <clears throat> so uh, uh, the economy. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling very good. I think we're going to have a rip-roaring economy here over the next uh, 12, 18 months. Lots of growth, uh, lots of jobs, and uh, much lower unemployment. Uh, the unemployment rate today, just to give you a number, is just over 6%. That understates the stress out there. There's several million people that stepped out of the workforce, taking care of kids or sick relatives, uh, not counted as unemployed because they're not looking for work. So if you include those folks, the, the unemployment rate is probably around 9%. So that's high. Just uh, if you go back to the typical, look at the typical recession since World War II, the peak unemployment rate is around 7, 7.5%. So it's, there's still a lot of stress. Uh, but if you told me a year from now, we're closing in on 5%, and two years from now, we're closing in on 4 I'd say that sounds about right. Uh, so I think uh, we're going to get a lot of a lot of jobs here. Three reasons for that. Uh, one, uh, the pandemic uh, looks like it's winding. It's going to wind down here pretty soon. Uh, we'll achieve something I think akin to herd immunity, kind of mid-year. Let's say July fourth. And while that's not an event, it's going to be kind of a process. I do think people are going to start feeling better, safer, and venturing out and uh, doing more things. Businesses will reopen, schools re will reopen, and we'll get back to normal. But by, by the way, interesting kind of number, we construct a so-called back to normal index. We do this with CNN Business, which uh, is a, a measure based on lots of different statistics to try to gauge where we are today relative to where we were pre-pandemic. And as of the last read, we're at 86%. So we're 86% of normal. So we're 14% below normal. And it, 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 the, just to give context, the low point was back last April, a year ago, when the business when business shutdowns were at their apex, we were at 60%. So we've made a lot of progress. Big differences across the country. New York is 75% of normal. Uh, Florida is 95% of normal, just to give you kind of the, the bookends. But we're making our way back. Second reason optimism is uh, there's a lot of pent-up demand, uh, particularly among uh, folks that have been sheltering in place uh, for over a year, uh, and they want well, they want to do things, travel, restaurants, ball games, haircuts, all of the above. And because they've been sheltering in place, they've, they've not been spending, they've been saving, and uh, there's a lot of excess saving, particularly among high-income households, people who kind of navigated the pandemic relatively well. 
just give you a context there, about there's about two trillion in excess saving. That's saving above which you would have seen if not for the pandemic. Uh, that's about 10% of GDP. So that's a, a lot of cash. Not all of that will be spent. You know, some of that will be saved, but that, you know, that's a lot of firepower, financial firepower for those households to unleash their pent-up demand. Uh, and again, mostly high-income households with that two trillion dollars in excess saving. Three quarters of that is to folks in the top 10% of the income distribution. So, you know, it gives you uh, again sense of kind of the schizophrenic nature of the of the fallout from the pandemic. The third reason for optimism is all the fiscal support. Uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, fiscal uh, uh, juice coming. Uh, if you add up the money coming from the $900 billion fiscal support package passed at the end of last year and the $1.9 trillion that was passed a few weeks ago, the American Rescue Plan, and you kind of look at the spend out over time, uh, almost two trillion of that money will get into the economy in calendar year 2021. Two trillion. That's, that seems like that's kind of a, a celestial uh, regularity. Everything seems to be about two, two trillion dollars these days. I'm, I'm not sure why. It just it is though. It's about two trillion. So another 10% of GDP. So that's a lot of again a lot of support coming into the economy, and all of that means a, a lot of growth and a lot of jobs and a much lower unemployment. And you know I've I've been an economist doing forecasting for almost 30 years. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes I'm confident in my forecasting and sometimes not so much. Uh, I'm about as confident as I've ever been about where we're headed here over the next 12, uh, 12 months, 18 months. It's, it's going to feel uh, pretty good uh, going forward. Okay. Uh, let's now pivot a little bit and talk about what's next in terms of policy. Uh, there's a lot more coming. Uh, the president is going to announce a package tomorrow. Uh, my sense is, and there's a lot of reporting now on this, and so I might not be right up to date with the reporting, but my sense is it's going to be somewhere between two and a half to three trillion dollars, 2.5 to three trillion. That would be uh, spending on various forms of infrastructure, and uh, some of that will be tax credits for uh, clean energy investment and uh, around housing. There's a, an affordable housing crisis and there'll be more tax credits for LIHTC and, and those kinds of things. Uh, about two thirds of the package probably will be paid for uh, with tax increases, uh, primarily on uh, businesses, corporations. So the most obvious source of new revenue will be raising the top marginal rate on corporations from 21% back to 28. You may recall uh, President Trump passed the so-called TCGA, that took effect in 2018, that lowered the top marginal rate from 28%, excuse me, from 35% to 21. This will take it back from 21 to 28. There will also be probably an increase in, in just looking at President uh, uh, Candidate Biden's proposals uh, when he was candidate, candidate, it probably raised taxes on foreign income. So TCGA, the Trump tax cuts also uh, it was a, it created a big change in the way uh, income, U.S. companies' income overseas was taxed, and they're going to take away some of those benefits. And there'll be other prefer tax preferences that probably for fossil fuel industry that will go away as well. So uh, uh, the infrastructure is very significant. Uh, the biggest piece of that will be for transportation, you know, kind of plain vanilla, but much needed roads, bridges, um, 
airports, seaports, uh, water systems, uh, then broadband, we'll get a dose of money, R&D, you know, money that go directly to uh, national, uh, uh, to all the various uh, government agencies that distribute R&D money, the NHS, uh, NIH, uh, all, all kinds of organizations that do that. Uh, there'll be more money for, uh, uh, for uh, the power infrastructure, resilience. Uh, so it's a very, as you can imagine, given all the funds that are involved, it's going to be quite uh, broad ranging. Those costs will be distributed over a 10-year budget horizon. <clears throat> so let's say, uh, you know, you, you're going to spend an additional, you know, $250 billion per annum. You get back something like, you know, $180 billion per annum. So that leaves you $70 billion per annum in additional budget deficits, which obviously isn't great. You know, we added significantly to our deficits and debt over time. And I do think we are getting to the place where we're going to need to pivot and really focus on addressing a long-term fiscal situation. But I do think there's a significant need here. And if I, if I were king for the day, I, I think I'd go for a package that's along these lines. Again, maybe I tweak it around the edges and do things a little bit differently, but I think a package like this would go a long way to addressing one of our most fundamental needs around, <clears throat> around infrastructure and climate, uh, getting prepared for climate change and doing it in a reasonably fiscal, uh, fiscally sound way. So I, I think uh, there, there's good reasons to be supportive of the package. Let me end by saying, um, I think it's going to get done. Uh, you know, there's, this is not going to be as easy as the American Rescue Plan to get through Congress. But I do think uh, there is a lot of momentum for this. The economy is going to be strong. People are going to be feeling optimistic. I think the president's going to have the, the uh, kind of the uh, popularity behind his back. And uh, we, he may not get exactly what he wants, but he's going to get pretty close, I think. So uh, I think there's a really reasonably high probability of that. And then he's going on to the next thing, and that's a, 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 a plan for increasing spending on various types of social programs to address the issues around income, wealth inequality, and racial equity. And uh, there, that might be a little bit more difficult because uh, I think that has to be largely paid for it. I think they're going to run out of room. Uh, otherwise, they're going to have a problem with an overheating economy, but uh, but that will have to be paid for. But that might be a little bit more difficult to get through. But at the end of the day, I think uh, the, the, this president is a, is a transformational president and uh, is going to accomplish quite a bit. With that, I'll stop. I took my 10 to 15 minutes, uh, Tim, I think right on the nose. And uh, I could have I spoken for three days, but, you know, uh, I, I stuck to, to the uh, guidelines and I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, Mark. Uh, appreciate uh, you uh, staying within the uh, boundaries and, and acknowledging, by the way, that you're 51 percent right. That's, that's <laughs> right. always helpful. Uh, uh, if you could only tell us which when you're when the 51 percent actually kicks in. So we've got some uh, questions. Uh, we'll start with uh, Glenn uh, Lowenstein and then uh, have uh, follow up with Joan uh, Panagos. And and if when you ask your question, if you could remind everybody where you're from, that would be great. So Glenn, go ahead. Tim, thank you. And Mark, thank you for um, joining us. Glenn Lowenstein from Houston, Texas, and I've worked with your work for 30 years, so thank you. Um, I don't like that old, Glenn. I don't, somehow I don't believe it, but... Uh, okay. No, I have. I have, literally. I'm a real estate investor, so oh. it, 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 it directly applies. And this question does, too. So you talked about growth. It, you have some number in your mind on growth. 
What is your number in the next couple of years for inflation? I think um, inflation will accelerate. Uh, it's now the core PCE inflation. That's the core consumer expenditure deflator. Uh, that is the measure the Federal Reserve uses for gauging uh, where it wants to be on monetary policy. Is at about 1.5%. Uh, its target is two, so it's below target. So it wants higher inflation. So if you told me a year from now, inflation is at two, and two years from now, it's above two, say two and a quarter percent, somewhere in that ballpark, I say that sounds about right to me. And I say that is to script. That is a feature, not a bug. Uh, that's what the Federal Reserve wants. I mean, we've been in a world of uncomfortably low inflation, disinflation, We've had fears of deflation, outright price declines at points for the last almost 20 years. It's kind of, I feel, it feels like this big black hole out there that we haven't been able to break away from. And obviously in the rest of the world, Europe and Japan, they've been sucked right into the black hole. You know, we've been able to avoid that, but we haven't, you know, we haven't been able to pull away. And I view this period as an opportunity to pull away once and for all. And I think the Fed will succeed in doing that, along with all that fiscal support that we're going to get. I do acknowledge, in you know, this is kind of the direction of your intended question. I do acknowledge that the risk is that inflation may end up being higher than that, which would be potentially undesirable. I mean, if, it, if inflation started to creep up towards three or above three, I think that would no longer be a feature. That would be a bug. And so, you know, I view that as a as a risk scenario. It's, it's possible. And it does depend critically on what President Biden does tomorrow, how much of it of the package is deficit finance and what's the spend out and, and what his third package looks like and how much of that is deficit finance. If, you know, if he if he uh, doubles down on deficit financing and he pulls forward the spending, you know, uh, early on in his administration, then the risk scenario becomes more possible. Uh, the probabilities will rise. But at this point, it feels like uh, the administration is calibrating things properly. And in fact, a lot of really good press reports around all the internal uh, kind of debate around, you know, just how much should be deficit financed because of the fear that, you know, they provide too much deficit financing. And we do get into a world of uncomfortably high interest rates, which no one, the reason why people don't like that is because there are lots of reasons, but the most fundamental reason is that's the fodder for the next recession, right? Because the Federal Reserve is going to fight that by raising interest rates. And that's kind of a, the classic way economy, uh, business cycles come to an end. You know, they come to an end when they overheat. And you're at that concern of, of high inflation, high interest in overheating scenario. So they want to avoid that at all costs. That would be very counterproductive for every, every objective that they have. So th I think they're very sensitive to that. And of course, they got good people there thinking about it. I mean, Janet Yellen was the former chair of the Fed. You know, who's now Secretary of Treasury, and I'm sure she's all over this. Yeah, but but sure. the, I think they'll be able to pull it off. Very helpful, thank you. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, Joan uh, Panagos, and then after Joan, uh, Robert DeRose. Hi, Mark. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure if you uh, specifically addressed this um, when you were talking about the tax bill, and you were talking about the increase in the in the corporate tax, and also specifically uh, revenues generated overseas. What do you see as the bill containing for the top marginal personal rate and maybe what the threshold for that might be for the top rate? And also, do you think any bill would include a return of the SALT deduction? 
Yeah, I uh, on this package, I think it's going to be more focused on corporate taxes. I think the uh, uh, it'll be the next package on the package that will focus on social spending that will have payfors, including tax increases. And there, in that package, the third package, uh, which will come in a few weeks, I think, or a couple of months, will be focused on uh, higher taxes for high income high net worth households. Uh, And the president has made it very clear. And I think everything he's done so far, he's stuck to what he said he was going to do in the campaign uh, is uh, uh, taxes for people who make will remain unchanged for people who make less than $400,000 a year. So if you make over 400K a year, you you can expect to see your top marginal rate going up. I, I, I don't know, you know, where they're going to land on that, you know, uh, where, where it's going. Obviously, those that, that's the same group that got tax cuts as part of the Trump uh, TCGA package. So there'll be some rolling back of that. There's also discussion of uh, higher capital gains rates for, again, for people who, uh, in this case, make over a million a year. So if you're very high income, uh, you're probably going to like, you'll probably play higher uh, rate uh, capital gains rates. Uh, and uh, there will be some tax reductions, and uh, the one place where we might see some reduction is on the salt uh, uh, caps. You know, obviously, uh, given the politics of that, there's a, a lot of uh, pressure, uh, political pressure, and a lot of uh, interest in uh, in uh, raising those caps. Uh, so I, I think we should expect to see that as well. So. There's some tax increases and there's gonna be some tax cuts, but the net of all of it will be significant tax increases because they're gonna to need to, administration's gonna need to raise revenue to help pay for that third package. But I think the higher taxes on individuals, that's that's the, that's gonna be even tougher than on corporations, that's coming. Uh, that's, the, that's part of the third package. And kind of the way, you, the way they're kind of lining it up is kind of creative. They're, you know, they're saying, okay, uh, infrastructure, uh, you know, that's about really helping business, you know, it's helping everybody, obviously, but it's about improving our productivity and uh, as a nation and getting, allowing businesses to uh, do their business more effectively, more productively. So they should bear the burden of the cost of increasing the infrastructure spending. The social spending, uh, you know, that's about income and wealth distribution. That's about raising uh, the, fo- uh, the, the uh, financial health, the condition of folks in the bottom part of the income distribution have really fallen uh, away here over the last two, three decades, and obviously got completely hammered during the pa- uh, pandemic, and it goes to racial equity. That burden of helping to address that uh, issue through increased education spending, healthcare spending, housing, affordable housing, child care, elder care should be borne by higher income households. So I think that's the logic behind the way they're uh, kind of uh, lining these things up and putting it forward. Thank you. Uh, hi, hi, Mark, uh, Robert DeRose, San Diego. And I know it's a little bit early, but what's your thoughts on the 22 election outcomes? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, that's a harder the question than where's the 10 year treasury yield gonna be tomorrow? <laughs> <You> know, <so. laughs> uh, uh, well, let me let me say this, uh, and, this and here I, this is probably probabilities are less than fifty one percent. So just you know take that you know. Uh, in, well, forty nine is okay. Forty nine is okay. 
Let me put it this way. Uh, I think because I am an economist, you know, everything looks like the economy to me. You know, it's like the construction worker with the hammer, the doctor, you know, everyone kind of looks at it through their prism. And so when I think about election outcomes, uh, I think about it in the context of, well, what's the economy doing, you know, uh, around that election? And actually, we've done a lot of modeling around this and uh, uh, at at the presidential level and are quite proud of that work. And uh, I I won't digress, but uh, there's a paper out there you might be interested in. Just Google Zandi presidential election model, and you'll get to it. And, uh, you know, we did a pretty good job of getting this election dead on the nose in terms of the Electoral College. Uh, I haven't done that at the uh, at the uh, uh, congressional level, uh, because that's particularly complicated. But my point is, in my modeling, in my research, the economy matters a lot. And it's not only about the level of economic activity, it's about the trend lines, because people do their own forecast. They take the last two data points they've got. And if you've got two data points, the next thing you do is draw a line in the two data points. And that's the future. That's, and by the way, that's, that's why financial markets get into trouble because everyone forecasts for the ruler. And real estate markets get into trouble because everyone forecasts for the ruler. People just forecast for the rulers. And so if, you're, if you buy into my forecast, which I, by the way, I have a higher than 51% probability in my forecast. I, as I said, I'm very confident in it. 12, 18 months from now, the economy should be very good. The, you know, unemployment rate should be low and unemployment rate should be headed lower. So the levels and the, the trend lines should all be very positive for the incumbent party. Uh, so that would argue that uh, all else being equal, the Democrats you know, should maintain control of the Senate and Congress. Now, having said all of that, you all know the political history here of the incumbent party trying to hold on in midterm elections. They always get creamed, you know, always get creamed. So, you know, it's, it's a very close call. And that's why I have no confidence in the, in, in what I'm saying, you know, I, I think you got the, 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 the uh, powerful force of the economy working in the favor of the incumbents, but you've got, you know, this historical regularity of people just vote out the incumbent party in the midterms working against the Democrats and the net of all that's pretty difficult. But I'd say if I were a betting man at this point, I'd bet on the Democrats remaining in control. Thank you. Great. Let's go to uh, Martin Muir. And then after uh, Martin, uh, we'll, uh, we'll go to John uh, Grillos. So Marty Muir from New York. Uh, hi, Mark. Um, you've done a lot of writing on uh, the GSEs, if, if I recall properly, and you mentioned affordable housing. Through what vehicle do you think the Biden administration is going to address that issue? Through the GSEs, through HUD, or through taxes? What sort of the vehicle, how are they trying to think about addressing uh, the issues of and crisis of affordable housing? Well, that's a great question, Martin. In fact, I just wrote a paper. Today, I published it on the affordable housing crisis and how to address it. So if, you're, if anyone's interested, Nancy, maybe I'll send it to you, Nancy, and you can distribute it to the folks. Uh, I go through... You know, I document the uh, the severity of the shortage of affordable housing. And affordable meaning, you know, kind of low price points for home ownership and you know, uh, lower rent uh, rental for low income households, lower middle income households. Very severe shortage, and go through uh, some analysis as to why. You know, what's going on? Why are we struggling with this? And then finally, what do, do should we do about it? And as 
as you know, it's a very complex problem with lots of reasons, you know, causing it. So there's no smoking policy gun here. It's, you know, it's a combination of things that need to get done to try to address this, uh, to address this problem. So it's multifaceted, but I think uh, what the administration is going to focus on is really on the, appropriately so, and I think the infrastructure package is going to show this tomorrow, uh, on the supply side of the housing market, to how do I get uh, incent more housing supply, more affordable housing supply? And there's you know a number of mechanisms that can be uh, used to to do that. You know I'll mention a couple. One is through the so-called housing trust fund and the CAT MAG fund. And you know uh, Elizabeth Warren actually put this uh, in legislation that I think she's going to reintroduce soon. And I think the Biden administration will probably pick that up. Uh, the, the Housing Trust Fund and Cap Mag Fund are currently financed uh, at a very small level by uh, the guarantee fee, a G fee. You know, there's a bit of a G, some of the G fee, the guarantee fee, the GSEs charge on a mortgage loan goes into that those funds to finance uh, affordable, mostly affordable rental uh, type uh, types of construction. And I think they're going to be scaled up. Uh, to allow for more construction. The beauty of those programs are that they they go to folks that are in these communities because, you know, actually uh, building these homes in places where they're needed is very, very difficult. And there's a lot of complexity. You have to know these neighborhoods. You have to know the actual homes. So you have to be on the street, on the ground. And, you know, the, the CDFIs and CDEs and housing finance agencies, they're Know, on the ground, and they're going to get the funding, and, and it'll help support. The other thing that's going to come, the other aspect of the uh, of what I think will come out tomorrow, uh, is the tax credits. You know, another way to incent more supply is to provide tax credits to uh, to builders to produce supply. So, LIHTC is a very, I think I mentioned that earlier. LIHTC is a very effective way of incenting more housing, affordable housing construction. Uh, new market tax credits, another very effective way. Of doing that, there's also uh, 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 tax advantage bonds that can be uh, that can be juiced up with federal subsidies that state and local governments uh, issue that use those those proceeds to finance uh, development. Uh, and you know, opportunity zones they've kind of gotten a bum rap. You know, they're they're flawed in many respects, but I I think at the at the heart of the OZs. There's some real value there. They just need to be tweaked to make them more transparent and make them work better. Uh, to have some accountability with regard to, you know, results. You know, if you get OZ subsidy, you got to show results. Uh, but you know, I think they could be also be, be part of the story. But uh, it's going to be both on the on the spending side to, you know, just more money that goes into housing supply and then tax credits to kind of support things. Some of those things will run through the GSEs and HUD. Uh, some of it, you know, like. Uh, uh, will uh, run through Treasury. I, you know, I think there's lots of different ways it'll run through, but I think every government agency is going to be engaged and empowered on this issue because this is a very critical issue for millions of households. And it's very critical to the economy because one of the biggest problems we have is people can't live anywhere close to where they work. Low-income households can't live anywhere close to where they work. Their commute times are very long and it hurts their ability to get a job and it hurts businesses' ability to find qualified workers. And if we solve this problem or at least address it, we'll go a long way to improving not only the, uh, the, the, the kind of the standard of living of these households, and obviously they're, very, they're struggling with all of this, 
but also uh, it'll help our economy and long-term economic growth, higher participation rates and higher productivity rates. But I mean, I'll be happy to share that paper with you. I wrote it with Jim Parrott from the Urban Institute and uh, you might find it of real uh, of value. I, I did a lot of survey work. I, I talked to a lot of different folks uh, to get different opinions. By the way, very interesting point on that. Everyone agrees about uh, the uh, scale of the problem and they can all list the reasons why, but everyone disagrees as to uh, which is the most important and which is the least important. But I settle it. I settle it in the paper. Yeah, you can see. Thanks, Martin. Um, uh, we'll go to John, and then after John, uh, Marjorie Hart. I've read that by the time you deal with the deferred maintenance and the infrastructure and the infrastructure improvements required to support a growing economy, that the number is more like six trillion, not three, two, or three or four. Yeah, I mean, we have a very significant shortfall, John, in our infrastructure needs because we have not invested for many decades. I mean, if you look at the share of of, a, of a GDP that's going to public infrastructure that has steadily declined for three decades and is, you know, very, very low. I mean, it peaked back, not surprisingly, in the 50s and 60s when we built out the interstate highway system, which, by the way, was one of the most important uh, uh, drivers of productivity growth in that in that period. It's one of the reasons why the 1960s was such a, was a, such a strong decade, because we built out that that highway system that allowed people to go uh, out from the urban areas. Uh, and uh, it was very successful, but we have not been, we've, it's been declining ever since. And in recent decades, last decade or two, it's, uh, you know, very, very, barely replacement, barely replacement in, in many cases, not. And so I think uh, we, there, the shortfall is much greater here, but you know, this is a very significant step in the right direction and hopefully we can build on it. You know, particularly if, if it can be shown how important the spending is to improving uh, people's lives and reducing congestion and addressing climate change issues, and most significantly, raising the level of productivity growth in the economy. Thank you. Great, Marjorie, and then after Marjorie, we'll go to uh, Cody uh, Tapple. Thank you, and thank you, Mark. Uh, looking for revenue, isn't there very considerable public support now? And I thought Biden enthusiasm for the idea of, of taxing carbon. And is this likely to be in the bill? And, and isn't this a time when that might be time to do that? And corollary to that, uh, another possibility is uh, funding the IRS to collect all those uncollected taxes. And there's an equity argument for that. Both of these things seem to have bipartisan potential appeal. So what's your thinking on those two things? Well, Marjorie, I think on, on the latter, on uh, uh, increasing enforcement on, uh, uh, on paying back taxes, particularly among high income taxpayers, has a lot of bipartisan support. And there, there actually is growing evidence that there is you know, a fair amount of, uh, of revenue out there uh, if high income taxpayers actually paid what they, what they owed uh, and that they haven't been in part because enforcement uh, has, uh, a lot, has uh, uh, declined over time, uh, particularly in recent years. Uh, and there, I, there was actually a really great paper that just came out, was it this week or last week, uh, that you know, did a very convincing job in, in showing that there's you know, a fair amount of money out there, revenue that could go towards uh, uh, paying for some of these programs. In fact, I, I, my guess is that that will be part of the pay-fors in the next package, the social program package that we've been talking about. 
that would be consistent with how they're framing administration's framing all of this. So I, I agree with you on that, and I think there is a fair amount of support you know, on that issue, bipartisan support. On the carbon tax, you, maybe you know better than I, but I, I still feel like that hasn't gained the traction that it deserves. You know, again, as an economist, uh, it feels like that is a slam dunk solution to a lot of problems. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you know, if you don't want something to happen, just raise the price. You know, it, it's a ma- it's a very magical thing. You know, you raise the price on something, and people change behavior pretty pretty quickly. Not only they stop. Uh, using carbon, but people figure out how ways to save carbon. You know, they, they people focus like a laser beam on solving a problem if they have to, you know, if they are paying a higher price for it. Uh, and, you know, in fact, this is why, I, you know, hopefully you don't take this the wrong way, but this is why I'm not overly worried about climate change in that I know how to solve it. It's not a problem. I can solve it quickly. <laughs> You know, just let me tax carbon. And I think if we come, push comes to shove and people realize, oh my gosh, you know, if we don't do something here, you know, we're going to have a world of hurt on, on, the, on the climate change issue, then uh, we will gain, tra- will gain, carbon tax will gain traction to the point that it will become law. And, you know, the one wrap against the carbon tax is that it's regressive, right? You know, because low income households, you know, tend to spend a higher proportion of their income on on gasoline and because they commute to work long distances and they uh, and they in fact here's here's a factoid for you the low income households in the southeast spend a higher share of their income on gasoline than any other demographic in the country that's 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 a fact by orders of magnitude whereas northeast high income they spend the least amount on uh, on on carbon on, on tax. So it's a re- very regressive, but the way you solve that problem is you just raise the revenue and you, and you give most of it back and you cut everyone the same check. You cut, you know, you and I, you could get $1,000 back a year and a low-income household could get $1,000 back a year, but for, for the lower-income household, that's real money. That's significant. So you could easily address the issues around regressivity and still, you know, raise revenue, but also most importantly, I think, uh, you know, I'd sacrifice the revenue just to address the climate change risk here because I think that is a considerable risk, and so uh, I think uh, you know that would work. But I, I'm not sure I agree with you that there's bipartisan, widespread uh, support for that yet. I think we're working on it, and, and it's, I think it's one of those issues that you know you keep people keep working on it, working on it, working on it, work through all the issues, the kinks, a lot of. Uh, intellectual firepower is going into it. We go down lots of different roads, kind of like GSE reform, Martin. We're all, you know, kind of thinking about how to do it and we're thinking about it. And then all of a sudden, somehow a political window opens, right? You know, whatever it may be, it's just an event that says, crystallizes in every mind, everybody's mind and go, oh my gosh, this is a huge problem. We got it. We got to address it. And we can walk through because we did all the hard work up front. You know, we did all the intellectual hard work thinking through all of the issues and I think that's where we are right now. There's a lot of good organizations that are doing it. You know, CLC, you know, is doing a lot of work on this. Uh, Janet Yellen was, I think, kind of a founding member of the CLC, and she's, you know, in favor of the carbon tax, as far as I last I heard, uh, and I think she still is. So, I, you know, I think, it, you know, that may be one of those issues that it looks like it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen, not going to happen. 
wow, all of a sudden it happens. And so I think it's well worth working on. Thank you. Let's go to Cody and then after Cody, uh, Cody. Yeah, thanks, Mark, for spending time with us tonight. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on digital currencies and especially as it relates to, you know, we've talked about all this fiscal and monetary stimulus, uh, you know, again, as it relates to the dollar, potential debasement down the road, gold, I would just, you know, high level love to hear about that. Thank you. Uh, well, digital currency is coming. Uh, I think it's just a matter of time. I think, you know, the Fed is in, uh, working on this assiduously. Uh, Jay Powell, the chair of the Fed, is asked about this every time he testifies. And, you know, he, I think he makes it clear that the Fed is kind of working through all of the issues on digital currency. And, uh, you know, I, I suspect that we will see something, maybe not next year or the year after, but, you know, before the decade is out, I think we'll have some form of digital currency, uh, at least in, you know, a proof of concept form. So we'll be working through those issues. So I think that's an issue. I mean, I think that's something that will happen. It's just a matter of time working through the, you know, logistical issues, the technological issues, the cyber issues, you know, those kinds of things. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't think, I, I feel very confident in, uh, now I'm reacting to your, uh, uh, your comment about dollar debasement. Uh, I feel very confident in the value of the U.S. dollar. Uh, I think that the U.S. economy is fundamentally strong. I think we're going to observe that over the next uh, couple, three, four years. Uh, I, I think we have a very enviable system of uh, uh, of uh, of way we manage the economy. In our, you know, our politics could be better for sure, uh, but we got people like Nancy working on it, and I think you know we're going to move in the right direction on that. Um, you know, the best the thing that makes me most confident about the United States is, and I know I'm waxing a little bit philosophical, but I'll get back to the debasement of the currency in a second, is that the best and the brightest in the world still want to come to the United States of America. And there's good reason for that. It's a, we're a free country uh, and we have freedom uh, to, 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 to speak, to think, to do what we want, uh, to make money, to lose money, to start companies. Uh, we have failing companies, but we have uh, many successful companies. You, you know, you can make of it what you put into it. And I don't think anywhere else in the world is quite like the United States in doing that. So as long as we continue to maintain can I, can I that, preface that with, can I preface that with, uh, we have definitely been the best house in a bad world neighborhood for a while. Exactly. I agree there. I, I, no doubt on that. So, uh, and, and again, there's, you know, not to interrupt, but I, I didn't want to go too far there, but you know, thank no, you. No, good point. Yeah, and so I, you know, I I think the hand wringing over the 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 dollar losing its place as a let's say a global reserve currency or the standard bearer is overdone in my view. Uh, in part for what you just said, it's all relative. You know, replaced with what exactly? Uh, and, and then I'd say, finally, just because it's related, and I know there's some interest, I don't see crypto as a, as a viable alternative, at least not at this point in time. It's not a store of value or a medium exchange because the value goes up and down and all around because the supply is fixed while the demand for it goes up and down depending on conditions. That just doesn't work. And you know, if you have volatility 
in the value, then you, no one's going to store, no one's going to save in it. No one's going to use it as a medium of exchange or it'll be very difficult to, at least in the foreseeable future. I mean, there's, you know, there, there's technological issues that I, I think can be solved and maybe I'll be wrong 10 years from now, but I don't think I'll be wrong next year. You know, and by the way, it probably will be solved because, the, you know, again, going back to my point, if you can make money, things change. You can make money in crypto and, you know, the best and brightest of those kids that are coming up in their late teens and 20s, they're going into the crypto market to try to figure out how to solve those technological issues. And I'm sure they will eventually, but, you know, that probably is, you know, for another day. It's not this this year or next. So for the foreseeable future, I think the value of the dollar is, you know, well established. And, you know, going to digital currency, you know, I think that's just a natural evolutionary step that will enhance its position in, uh, in, in the world uh, you know, uh, world uh, uh, currency markets. Thank you. All right, we'll go to pitch, and then after pitch, uh, Kay uh, Planis. My question is that some of the states which have had the loosest regulations are moving ahead economically quite well. Uh, are, you, are you concerned that this uh, prosperity in, in, uh, will be dampened by the COVID virus making a comeback in those states that have had a lot of free reassociation, yeah, I'm con- I'm concerned. Pitch. I mean, I I mean, I think it is important that we listen to the CDC and the CDC director made it pretty clear yesterday or the data before that she's very worried about a reintensification of the virus in the next few weeks, next few months, and there are some signs that it's starting to move up. So yeah, I think this is a reason for concern, and you know, should uh, I think uh, incent everyone to you know, do what the CDC is asking us to do, uh, you know, put on a mask when we're in a public place and, 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 you know, try not to travel, you know, in this period until we're on the other side, which is just around the corner. So, yeah, I, I do worry about it. I mean, I did mention earlier, for example, that the state of Florida has come, made a, uh, the most significant comeback from the pandemic. It's at 95% of, uh, you know, pre-pandemic levels. That's the best performance of any state. And partly that's because it's reopened very aggressively, but it's going to lose ground if that does result in increased infections and more hospitalizations and deaths. So yeah, I do worry about that. I think that is a risk to my optimism. I am I am optimistic. I think, you know, the economy is going to be very strong and I think we are going to get to the other side of this pandemic in the next few months. But if you ask me what could derail that optimism, I think the thing at the top of the list is what you're pointing to. And that is so the if COVID makes a comeback though. If COVID makes a comeback, it could affect economically because some states may have to cut back or even shut down. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So I'd say that's the number one risk to my Thank optimism you. in the immediate near future. Yeah. So Kay, and then after Kay, uh, Tom McInerney. Thanks, Mark. It's um, really interesting to hear your analysis. Um, we, I want to talk about the social bill, the third bill that Biden will put forth. Um, we have the most unequal income distribution in the his almost close to the history of our of our nation it's extraordinarily unequal um do you think that that affects our economic growth potential in other words if we address some of these um income distribution um disparities by raising the social safety net and looking at a different tax policy from inheritance to high income earners Will we um, find that that actually could be positive in terms of economic growth? Uh, Kay, that's a great question. Yes, I think uh, if we are able to address the income and wealth inequalities 
and reduce those inequities, uh, reduce the gap, that it would help support longer, stronger long-term uh, economic growth. That, in fact, the growing disparities is beginning to uh, undermine our long-term uh, growth prospects. There's the channels through which that ha happen are uh, difficult to identify. You know, economists have struggled with this, uh, but you know, one of the most obvious is that uh, if lower-income households are struggling, that makes our you know our our politics particularly difficult. Uh, we it's hard for us to come together by in a bipartisan way because interests are so unaligned, and we uh, make mistakes as a result. So. This will be a controversial statement, probably, but in my view, uh, the process of globalization is a slam dunk positive for our economy. It, it makes our economy stronger. It makes it bigger. Uh, and, and when I say globalization, I mean trade, I mean immigration, mm -hmm. investment, global investment, all of the above. And because of the, the benefits of globalization accrued mostly to high income, high net worth households and low income low net worth households got creamed by globalization. You know, it's true when Ross Perot said back in the 90s, we're going to hear a sucking sound when we have NAFTA, that there was truth to that. There was a hollowing out of many low income jobs for low income workers. And, you know, when China entered into the WTO in 2000, 2001, very similar kind of dynamic, even, even greater than the NAFTA agreement. So uh, we did not as a nation uh, take that into consideration. We didn't figure out a way to ensure that the benefits of that were distributed more evenly. As a result, globalization has been short-circuited. You know, we've been in trade wars. You know, we're, uh, you know, uh, we've uh, pulled back on immigration. Uh, we are, are much more skeptical of global investment. And by the way, that makes our, diminishes our economy. That also diminishes us geopolitically, because now we're fighting with countries we should not be, you know, it would be much better if we weren't fighting with them, but we were working with them, right? So uh, there's, a, a, I think, a clear-cut example of when you don't pay attention to the income and wealth inequalities that exist, that it can lead to very bad outcomes and result in a much diminished economy. So absolutely, positively, yes. Here's the other thing I'd say that's uh, a little bit more nuanced, but I do think the income and wealth inequality also exacerbates the ampli the numbers the, the amplitudes of the business cycle the ups and downs in the economy at the i think the financial crisis to a significant degree was the result of growing income and wealth inequality because you had low income households that were falling further and further behind who had the option and the ability to take on debt that they couldn't really afford and they took it and you know it worked for a while in fact it kind of papered over the problems for a while they could continue to spend and consume like they had previously, even though their incomes were diminished. But obviously, that came crashing down and created the financial crisis, which cost us dearly. The nation's debt to GDP ratio prior to the financial crisis was 35%. After the financial crisis, it was 80%. That's how costly that was to us. By the way, more costly so far than the pandemic. So, you know, a big deal. So that, in my mind, you can lay the... the if most fundamentally lay the cause of the financial crisis at the feet of our inability to address our income and wealth inequality. So, you know, forget about fairness. I mean, I think that's a, we should, that's a very important debate we should have. And I, you know, I think we should address the fairness question, but just about, you know, uh, how about our economy and how it's going to, how it functions and performs 
if we don't address this issue, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a weight on our ability to grow in the longer run. Thank you. We've got time for uh, two more questions. Uh, after uh, Tom McInerney, we'll go to and, and finish up with Pam Humphrey. Tom. Okay. Uh, Pam, you want to jump in? Thank you so much for being on this call. I tell you, it's uh, stuff is moving so fast, it's hard to wrap your mind around. I have a couple of questions about um, our, you know, our desperate need for affordable housing. Um, with a, hopefully, the supply chain will start start easing up. The Suez Canal thing didn't help us much, um, mm -hmm. but there are a lot of regulations now in place. Uh, climate type regulations uh, and housing that are putting a lot of stress on developers and builders. And how is that putting a damper on the incentive to uh, rehab older buildings like the three deckers that we have here in Boston and Dorchester, <laughs> you know, which pro which provide huge opportunity for um, affordable housing. Uh, and the other thing is uh, coming back just briefly on the uh, CDC and the <clears throat> pandemic is just uh, the mixed messages coming out, I just think are having a huge uh, uh, impact on people's behavior and what they're doing and it just seems as if we're getting a lot of mixed messages you know now we have the vaccine we're, we have all these people are getting vaccinated and then everybody's saying it's a crisis because we're going to have another uptick in it and it's just i mean you wonder when it's going to stop and is this going to cause the government to shut us down again uh both good points so on the latter i'll just take that quickly uh, you know you're you're right i mean i think we have gotten a lot of mixed messages throughout the past year, partly because the unknowns here are pretty significant. You know, we learned as we went, and I think very difficult under any circumstance to you know get it right, given the high level of uncertainty. But the one constant I think we have heard is, you know, the basics, you know, around mask wearing and social distancing and hand washing and not traveling. And I think they've been consistent all along and we've not been able to stick to that, you know, because it's, you know, we have to make the decision collectively to do that. And we, you know, it's hard to do, you know, given the situation that we're in. So I, you know, I, I hear you. I think that's certainly an issue and we probably could have done better. And we should go back and take a look at how we did do because, you know, we, we may address a, a similar crisis in the not too distant future. So we should be prepared for it. But I, I, I don't, it's hard for me to, you know, be too critical here, given how difficult this all has been and how uncertain everything has been. Yeah, well, I'm not, that I understand, and it's certainly, you know, we do, we're figuring it out as we went. So of course, there's going to be a lot of inconsistency and uncertainty and what have you. But now we have a vaccine. We now have one vaccine. We have two vaccines, maybe three vaccines. Uh, that are considered to be highly effective. So I just don't understand the fear-mongering, next wave, watch out. Uh, I mean, it's having a huge impact collectively, just not mentally and every, and every other way and on our economy. And with the fear of them shutting it down again because of this nonsense, it's just, it's beyond my comprehension and I really worry about it. But anyway, that's that and yeah, fair um, enough you know fair enough uh on affordable housing you know in you you know i do think 
regulation, as you said, is has increased the cost of construction and that all else being equal, that has made it more difficult for builders to get the kind of return they need, particularly on lower priced properties. I mean, you can make the money up in, high, in the high end because you can charge a high price, but in the lower end of the market, until recently, you couldn't do that uh, because prices hadn't risen far enough. So I do think you're right, although I don't think I'd put that on the, if I had a top 10 list of impediments to construction in the affordable part of the market, I don't think I'd put that near the top of the list. I'd probably put that at the bottom, of the, towards the bottom. Of the list. You know, at the top of the list, and again, I'll send you the paper and you're more than welcome to, to look at it and, and I'd be happy to talk about it, uh, is land use that, you know, particularly in urban areas like a Boston, you know, there's been increasing restrictions on land use, both in terms of urban boundaries in many communities, but also in terms of zoning and other land use regulation within those boundaries, you know, lot sizes and, you know, the ability uh, to build uh, more than one unit on a lot or, you know, regulation on off-premise parking, you know, there's a long list of things. So in, in state and local governments have tightened up on those land use regulations and made it very, very difficult to build, again, particularly affordable housing in some of those areas where uh, it's most needed in, in the urban cores. And that's why I do think if I were king for the day, uh, and I don't think the administration is going to go down this path, I, I don't know, but if I were king, I'd probably tie some of the transportation money that's going to be in this infrastructure package that's going to state and local government to better land use uh, policies and regulation to make it uh, more, uh, make it easier for developers to build, you know, low in, uh, housing for low-income households, affordable housing. I think that would go a long way to addressing that issue. Yeah. Well, de density and other things and outcomes of that have implications as well. So, you know, there's got to be a balance there. You know, just all regulations on lot size and what have you are, um, you know, maybe an issue. But if you start piling on buildings and density, uh, sure. then, you, then you hit the infrastructure issues and the support of the community to be able to support the density and da 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 da. da. So that's the, the difficulty <laughs> of the problem for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you. Why don't we uh, wrap up? Mark, you'll be pleased to know that Liz has already sent your, uh, the link to your uh, paper regarding. Uh, oh, it's out there. Okay, good. Okay, yeah. good, good. I'm sure everybody's read it by now, too. I was going to say, this is harder than C-SPAN. This is harder than my, my half hours on C-SPAN every once in a while. So thank you. The great questions and wonderful group. So thank you for the opportunity to let me get on my soapbox. It's very, very kind of you. So thank you. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Nancy, any closing comments? Great. Okay, well, good. Thanks, everybody, for their time. And, uh, and we'll see you uh, next week. Bye. Bye. Bye, -bye. Thank you. Thanks for hosting. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.